Ah, I think we're ready. Yes, I can see the tape spool turning. Oh, Thomasina, where have you been all day? Were you scared by all the trick-or-treaters out there tonight? Come and sit by me. You do have a habit of turning up right when I'm about to start a recording. Still, it's nice to know at least someone's listening. Well, are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then let's begin. The Matlock Tapes Halloween Special A Trilogy of Tales Professor Wilbur Matlock made hundreds of recordings recounting his involvement with the unknown, but not all of them consist of his own direct experiences. He was also a record keeper of folklore and weird stories, and a trio of such tales feature in tonight's episode, recorded on Halloween night 1971. Get ready to be taken on a journey spanning more than a hundred Halloweens, from the graveyards of Romania to the English countryside to a ship sailing unknown waters. Sit back, relax, but don't get too comfortable. Halloween is the one day of the year in which anything can happen. And I've collected so many folk stories documenting events that took place on this very day in history. This first story is set in Romania, way back in the year of our Lord, 1868. Valentina Milan, daughter of the town Ratcatcher, was a fiercely driven young girl, intent upon one thing only, to destroy all vampires. This tale explains how she defined herself as a good vampire huntress. The fob watch was dirty and wet with rain, and Valentina cursed herself for leaving it exposed on top of the tombstone. The minute hand was still moving, she was relieved to note. 6.35pm, about 30 minutes left until sundown. Glancing upwards at the menacing autumnal sky, she prayed that it would still keep in good time. It was difficult to tell. The black-bottomed clouds were blocking the last light, giving the graveyard an early morning appearance on this All Hallows' Eve. A dull rush of wind stirred the long grass and the surrounding trees in snake-like waves, and she felt like she was being watched, but she refused to let her imagination get the better of her. There simply wasn't time for panic now. A good vampire huntress never panicked. Valentina was soaked through, not just through the irritating on-off rain, but through the exertion. It didn't help that the shovel was old and decayed, as she had to be so gentle with each stroke into the earth, just in case it snapped where the metal stem met the rotten wooden rod. It felt a little delicate there, tender and prone to break, and a good vampire huntress respected and looked after her equipment. She had thrown about six or seven clumps of mud to the side before finally the spade struck the coffin. 
it had not been buried deep, or perhaps the occupant had forced it upwards before their first foray into the world of the living. Perhaps it was the constant rain giving rise to several patches of land slipping and sliding over each other. This subsidence had tilted many of the gravestones askew, which was disorientating as in the grim afternoon night and in her tired state she was finding it very hard to tell up from down, as strange as that sounds. Everything seemed a little off-kilter. Perhaps Halloween was playing tricks on her. She discarded the spade and with dirty hands dug like an animal until she found the edge of the coffin lid. A fattened worm squirmed over the back of her palm until she flicked it away, then having to readjust her position to avoid cramping her shoulder, she knelt on the poor creature, squashing it to death against her trouser leg. Finding an edge of the wooden cover to grip, she yanked as hard as she could and prized the coffin lid open, then tossed it to the graveside. In the box beneath her, a serene face, pale arms crossed over the chest. A rose on his tunic was fresh and still surrendered a sweet fragrance. This chap was quite the dandy, handsome even. Valentina shook her head. It did not do to look too closely or to allow oneself to wonder about who this sleeping monster was in life, or to think of those he loved or who loved him. He was not that man any more. He was a creature, an ugly, repellent lowlife, like the worm which had snaked over her Blair Fresh. And like the worm, he was to be crushed, destroyed. It was the only way to end the madness. Like all good vampire hunters, Valentina employed the traditional methods of dispatch, that of the hammer and the stake. She retrieved the tools from the wet grass by her side and rested the pointed tip over the thing's heart. Even despite the time pressure, she did not like to dally when performing this act, as every time her imagination got the better of her, she imagined those cold eyes snapping open, and the thing lurching forward to tear a chunk out of her young flesh, ripping the skin from her exposed neck. One could never truly be at ease around these creatures. It is surprisingly hard to drive a stake into a body. The physical form is tougher than we sometimes give it credit. Valentina slammed down that hammer so many times that the back of her arms ached. She had to stop to wipe her brow, and with dismay, upon drawing back her hand, she saw that it was spotted with blood. Then she looked down and saw the creature had also bled all over her finely embroidered white shirt, and the scarlet red had mixed in with the mud and the rain. What a state she must have looked. To think that there were men back in the village who called her pretty. One always knows when the job is done properly, as on the final blow from out of the hole where the stake was driven, a wave of decomposition extends out across the creature. Time is finally allowed to regain control of the thing, and gleefully it ravages the vampire, changing it from the bloated, fleshy beast into the decaying corpse it should have been had nature been allowed to take her course. The vampire's aristocratic, supercilious face deflated until the papery, saggy skin hung off the skull and the eyes sank down into the emptying brain cavity. Finally, the skin yellowed then browned, stretching so thin it simply faded away. Valentina straightened up painfully. The first horror had been vanquished. Only one more sleeping parasite lay inside the graves of the church to destroy. Then the village of Sapanthra would be three of their terrible curse. Yet she would get no thanks, she accepted. 
In fact, should these acts of desecration be pinned on her, she would be almost certainly sent to the gallows. It was a dirty, dangerous life, but one that she had entirely devoted herself to. Above her there was a roll of thunder. She looked again at the watch and swore at herself, for each glance cost a little time, and she had to get this job done before sundown, for that was when the vile creatures stirred from their slumber, and while amok, under the moonlight, they were virtually unstoppable. Only while they were at rest were they truly vulnerable. She picked up the watch and her tools and strode the slippery grass to the next family grave. The telltale signs of frequent disturbance were there. Broken ground, the tombstone askew where it had been used as leverage by the awakening inhabitant to push upwards out into the world in a horrible parody of birth. She wasted no more time and sunk the spade into the wet ground. Then again and again. There was a pain in her shoulder and she looked forward to bathing that evening. The ground suddenly stirred beneath her, and she gasped when a blue hand erupted from the earth and grabbed the tool, flicking it out of her grip and across the graveyard. She backed away. Surely she had another half an hour at least. She risked a quick glance at the watch. The second hand was juddering back and forth, still at 6.35. Water in the mechanism. Why hadn't she taken more care? A good vampire huntress never makes elementary mistakes. The daylight died at the same moment as the vampire burst from the ground. She dropped the broken watch and ran to the gateway into the hallowed grounds, where she had left her knapsack and rummaged inside for her revolver. She didn't dare look back until she had it in her grip, the safety off. She spun to face the demon, but nothing there. The vampire was nowhere to be seen. She remained silent, still only the slight shake of her gun arm revealing her well-concealed fear. She could barely see but a few feet in front of her now, so quickly had the night descended, but she could hear, and so she stopped herself from breathing for a few moments in order to create an auditory picture of her surroundings. Was that something moving over there? Valentina, Valentina, my sweet little girl. <laughs> the whispering voice carried on the wind, the thing was laughing at her discomfort. You know no, that, that bullets, bullets cannot, cannot harm, harm us, do you not? not? She reacted to the news. What? No. She lowered her useless weapon, but still kept it gripped tightly in her hand. I am sorry, she whimpered, eyes wide the perfect victim. Will you please let, let me go? The vampire charged at her from the right, mouth agape, thangs bared ready to feed on this simple young pup. It was at that moment that she swung round, pointed the gun, and fired. Her attacker looked in astonishment at the erupting wound in his chest, death and decay slowly radiating out from it, engulfing him. Calmly and showing none of her earlier fear, Valentina walked over to the creature as he sunk to his knees and wailed in agony. She placed her boot against his rapidly decomposing chest and flashed him the weapon so that it was the last thing he saw in the moments before his eyeballs turned into grit. Silver bullets, my sweet, she explained to him patiently. A good vampire huntress never leaves home without them.
The Matlock Tapes continues after this short break. If you are listening to this message, then the subliminal frequency has successfully calibrated to your mind. Do not be alarmed. I am here to advise you to explore the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is both a written series as well as a podcast. It explores various locations where paranormal and supernatural events have occurred. It is a broadcast on a forgotten frequency. Hauntings, time slips, cryptids, cults, and more are investigated and examined. Enter a world designed by torch and moonlight. Go to occultariaofalbion.com or search Occultaria of Albion wherever you find your favourite podcasts. End transmission. The days are shorter now. It's that time of year again when it's dark outside when we leave our houses in the morning to go to work and dark again as we make our way home. Thankfully this twilight period is short and spring will soon assert itself but until it does all manner of spirits are running riot empowered by the darkness. Take care dear listener whilst you walk the empty lanes and silent streets lest you meet a ghost that is hungry or vengeful. That puts me in mind of one of the latest ghost stories I heard told, a more recent tale from Somerset, England. I would like to tell you that story now if you will allow me. I think I'll call this one King of the Road. It was very early in the morning and the merest sliver of sunlight crept over the horizon. A tired night shift worker, let's call him Steve was driving home from his place of work in his rusty red Vauxhall Victor. Steve was hungry. He thought only of breakfast. His long black hair was dirty and kept falling forward over his eyes. He decided that he would go into town later and see that dishy hairdresser to get it cut. Now what was her name? Claire? Clara? He was thinking about her and not watching the single track road ahead so didn't see the cyclist heading towards him, despite the shining safety light warning of its presence. He didn't hear the cyclist's frantic bell ringing over the noise of T-Rex on the radio. He only really became aware of the other man when he rolled over the bonnet and up and onto the roof. Steve slammed on the brakes, and the man he had run over rolled off the top of the car and hit the road behind with a sickening thud. Without even putting the handbrake on, Steve rushed out of his car and ran over to the fallen man, a queasy feeling already rushing through him. Christ, he thought, what if I've killed him? His panting breath steamed in the early morning mist. All was quiet, peaceful even. There was a blue overalled man splayed out on the concrete, his head at an impossible angle to the rest of his body, and a few yards further along, a buckled bicycle, its back wheel in the air and still spinning. Steve didn't need to be a doctor to know that this man he had run over was dead. The rictus grin was smiling at him, but the eyes were lifeless. Did that make his abandonment of the body an easier decision to make, I wonder? Or had the casualty still been breathing, would he have stayed or sought help? We may never know what drives a man. 
Steve dragged the dead cyclist into the bushes at the side of the road, then went back for the bicycle and concealed that also within the weeds. Hands shaking, he got back into his car and exhaled deeply. His fingers gripped the key in the ignition, but he paused for a moment or two before turning it to start the car. Could he go through with this? He had to. He had tasted jail for a minor offence a few years ago, and had no intention of going back. Who rides a bike this early in the morning anyway? He asked himself, riding in the dark. Stupid bastard. Asking for trouble, bloody cyclists, all the same, thinking that they're king of the road. He slept well after eating breakfast. Incredibly deeply, in fact, but when he awoke in the afternoon, he was immediately and violently sick. He was sure to wipe up all the vomit before his dear old mother came home to find it. The act of cleaning made him realise he should perhaps turn his attention to the car, to make sure any evidence of what had occurred was erased. He pulled his trousers on and went out to the garage. Inside, he inspected the little car most thoroughly, finding nothing but a cracked headlight that spoke of the accident. He rubbed the stubble on his chin. He'd have to get that fixed, he realised, as should the police come calling, the first thing they'd do was check for damage. He put aside his plans to meet up with that glamorous hairdresser, Claire, Clara, and drove back into town. There was a mechanic on Broad Street that owed him a favour. Yes, he would help. Fortune's Wheels Mechanics was the outfit he worked for. Not the most dependable car maintenance company, but they worked quickly and cheaply. But Darren wasn't working that afternoon, another mechanic at the garage informed him. Steve swore, then asked the man if, in that case, could he fix the headlight. I would like to help you, pal. The mechanic shook his head, wiping his greasy hands on the blue overalls. But we're short-staffed today. Boss hasn't made it in yet. Steve noticed for the first time the Fortune's Wheels company uniform. Royal blue. Just like the body he'd left by the side of the road. Suddenly he began to feel sick again. Oh yeah, he tried to sound casual. Off sick today, is he? Should have been here at eight, but we've not heard from him, the mechanic answered. Which is odd, because he always calls in if he's going to be late, or if his bike has a puncture. Steve started making excuses, wanting to get away from there as fast as possible. Hang on, mate, the mechanic called. If it's only a headlight, I can fit you in. Won't take ten minutes. Once the job was done, he drove the little car back home, parked it in the garage, and stepped out onto the driveway. A police siren wailed in the distance. Was it coming closer? Coming for him? He shook himself. What had he to fear? They'd have no evidence, would they? He felt compelled to check over the car again to make sure he'd wiped away every trace of blood. It was then that he noticed that the headlight was still cracked, which was impossible. He'd watched the mechanic replace it, yet there it was, a crooked black smile in the glass that seemed to be laughing at him. Again he was reminded of the dead man, the man he had killed. The sirens grew louder. He began to sweat. He exited and closed the garage doors and took refuge inside his house, but the relief was short-lived because while he took his coat off and was hanging it up, he saw through the frosted glass on the front door that two police officers were walking up the path towards him. He gasped, wiped the sweat from his forehead with a tissue, and quickly sorted his hair out. Knock, knock, 
knock. He answered the door and acted surprised to see two officers of the law. Oh, hello, lads. He half smiled. What can I do for you? The oldest of the two coppers coughed and asked him to confirm his name. Well, sir, we're looking for witnesses to a road traffic accident early this morning. Steve had hoped that it would have taken longer for the body to be discovered. Perhaps he should have put it in the boot and driven home with it. Or threw it in the river. Stupid of him. No, he told himself, this wasn't your fault, remember? It was that bloody cyclist. And we have reason to believe you travel up and down the road in question. Did you see anything concerning on your route this morning, sir? Steve made a face that suggested he was thinking hard. No, sorry. The younger copper looked at him suspiciously. You drive a red Vauxhall Victor, sir, is that right? How had they got onto him so fast? They must have rung around factories with shift workers travelling around that time. Y yeah, Steve stammered. Can we have a quick look at it? The older copper asked, his eyebrow arched under his helmet. Steve's world contracted in on him. The crack! He couldn't let them near the damn car! Uh, I'm sorry, officer, he said eventually after a half-convincing lie had occurred to him. My dad's borrowed it. He won't be back until... until tomorrow. Morning or afternoon? Morning. Steve answered quickly, thinking that the quicker they could get their hands on the motor, the more likely they would be to tolerate the delay. The next few seconds felt like hours as he waited for a response. He almost wept when the older copper said, Ah, oh, no worries, son. Just come by the station with it first thing tomorrow when you've got it back. We just want to eliminate you from our inquiries, that's all. The sunlight was fading. 6pm. The mechanic was just about to put the closed sign on the door when Steve shoved his foot in it. Hey! The mechanic shouted. Steve forced his way inside the office and gave the man a piece of his mind. You told me that the light was fixed. It was. You saw it was. I did it in front of you. Well, it's bloody broken now, isn't it? Eventually, after much coercion, a compromise was reached. All right, mate, you leave the car here overnight, and I'll get one of the boys to fix it ASAP before we even open tomorrow. Steve wasn't happy, but saw that the suggestion was the best way to get a pristine, evidence-free vehicle over to the police as early as possible tomorrow morning. Well, how am I supposed to get back home? He grumbled. I can't afford a taxi. The mechanic had the solution. You can borrow that bike over there. Bring it back with you tomorrow when you come and pick up the car. Steve looked at the ancient woman's bike that was being offered to him and sighed. Bloody cyclists! He laughed as he rode the rickety bike through the dark country lane back into the village. And now here I am on this sodding bike, one of them. He chuckled. King of the road! He was still laughing when a car smashed into him. The police never did catch the driver. No unexplainable fingerprints were present in or around the vehicle, and the owner had previously reported it as stolen. There is another interesting fact in the police report, however. The car had faulty brakes and faulty steering. No wonder someone was killed. A botch job repair had previously been made on it a few days earlier, a receipt in the glove box confirming that it had been made by 
Fortune's Wheels Limited. You had a one-night stand with your girlfriend's flatmate. I know, I know. I screwed up, okay? Yeah, you're telling me. What was wrong with him? Xander, about ten shots. Don't think he was acting weird usual. Look, we're a bunch of semi-adults without jobs, living in crusty flats, still going to school and leaving with a life debt to a government we hate. I'd say we're all pretty weird, hun. Oh, my God. Yeah. Utter, utter. I don't even know. What did I do? Take a look around you. Our clothes are all over the floor and... Yeah, I'm naked. Oh, my God. I told you there was something up there. Freshers. Drama by students, for students. A brand new series. Available now on all good streaming platforms. Have you seen them, Thomasina? The children outside going door to door dressed as goblins and witches stuffing their little mouths with candy. They never ring on our doorbell, do they? To think that they could be afraid of little old me. Oh, goodness me, is that the time? Rather like poor Valentina, the time has run away with me. I'm getting tired now, but I think there's time for one last story. I first heard this one when I was studying in America. It's hardly what you'd call a first-hand account from a tangible witness, but it is a rather nice Halloween tale nevertheless. Guest of Honour General Arthur Allen Lake awoke to the sight of angels blowing trumpets above him. Or were they devils waving pitchforks? He squinted to try and see the ornate decoration on the ceiling a little better. Where were his glasses? And where was he, for that matter? The answer would surely come to him eventually. The general was more than 80 years old, and waking in confusion was not uncommon to him, his mind having begun to fail over the last few years. Alzheimer's disease, the doctor had said, but he never trusted doctors. He approached his present situation with a sort of stoic practicality. I'm in bed, he realised, not my own. So in a hotel, perhaps? No, judging by the gentle sway of everything around him, he was on board a ship out at sea. On a cruise liner, then. Margaret had been agitating for a holiday recently. He must have given in and agreed to it. Yes, that was it. Yet Margaret was not lying in the bed beside him. He probably should have felt concerned by that, but it did not worry him greatly. He was keen to get up and have a walk around ship, get his bearings, and the next thing he knew he was fully dressed and walking out of his luxurious cabin. A wall-mounted life preserver was stamped with the name HMS Mobius Strip. Funny name for a boat. He walked along the plush red carpet to a porthole and looked out of the tiny window. Outside, nothing but grey mist. He tutted. He had hoped for warm sun reflecting off the blue sea. You can always rely on bad weather to ruin your holiday, can't you? All was quiet on board ship apart from the low drone of the engines. Where were all the other passengers, he wondered. 
Perhaps it was early in the morning. That would also explain the mist. He was sure that he would see more people around lunchtime and... The grand clock in the dining hall struck 12 and around 100 guests sat around circular tables waiting for their first course. The general looked around for an empty seat but every table was full of men and women, each one staring at him as they silently waited to eat. A steward glided over to him. Am I late for luncheon? The general inquired, ready to argue that they should serve him whatever he wanted whenever he asked. You are right on time, sir, the steward answered smoothly. The general leaned closer to inspect the man whose face kept swimming in and out of focus. Do I know you, young man? The steward laughed without warmth. I'm surprised you remember me, sir. The general couldn't quite place him. He was about to question the man further when he was whisked to a table set high upon a podium. He was not a man who liked being whisked anywhere, but the preferential treatment was acceptably pleasing. Your table, sir? He found that he was sat down as attendants buzzed around him, tucking a napkin into his shirt, placing knives and forks on the table. The steward must have registered his confusion. You are seated here as the guest of honour, sir. He coughed, feigning embarrassment. It was only right that he was extended the privilege he deserved. He spoke quietly to the steward, so the silent diners could not hear. What's the occasion, my good man? Is it my birthday? A Halloween ball? Am I finally being awarded an honour by Her Majesty? The steward almost hid the rolling of his eyes, but not quite. No, sir. Her ladyship organised all of this, sir. Kind of a final send-off for you. Margaret? Did he mean Margaret? And what did he mean by final send-off? The soup that had been placed before him was steaming and smelt delicious. He selected a suitably grand silver spoon and was about to eat when he remembered the other diners. They were still staring at him, unmoving. Well, no need to stand on ceremony, he boomed across the empty dining hall. Come on, everyone, eat up. No one responded. Couldn't they hear him? He put the spoon down, slightly angry. He looked over the other guests. Hello, the fellow with the moustache on table three was old Bainbridge, wasn't it? Yo-ho, Bainbridge, old chap, good to see you. He hadn't seen Bainbridge for years. Smithy! Another familiar face on another table. And George Hardison! I thought you were dead, old chap! The steward coughed to draw his attention. He is dead, sir, he politely informed him. We're all dead, didn't you realise? The general laughed. The sound created was unfamiliar to him. Very good, yes. Very good joke, everyone. No one was smiling. It was a slow and almost painful process, but as he looked out across the other passengers, nearly all the faces resolved into a name and a memory. Nearly all of them old acquaintances, but some old enemies. Yet there were also many of them he did not recognize at all, most of which that were in that category were young men, clean-cut soldier types, men he'd led into battle perhaps, but some of them wore German uniforms. But all that was forty years ago. They wouldn't still be that young now. Unless... His throat was dry. He reached for a glass of wine that had been poured for his convenience. He drank it but felt no flavour or comfort from it whatsoever. Steward! He called hoarsely. Steward! Who was it who invited us all on board ship? 
tell me again, won't you? Her ladyship, sir. The steward answered, like that answered everything. He waited a few moments before taking pity on the general. Would you like to meet her? The general suddenly understood. No! He cried. No, I, I can't face her! The steward smiled. But you must. The door to room 13 was opened for him, and he was involuntarily shoved inside. A woman in a white wedding dress sat on the bunk bed, a veil covering her face. He shook his head and tried to turn around, but the door had been shut behind him. He banged it with his arthritic fist several times before giving up, and slowly turned to face the bride. Arthur. Her voice came from behind the veil. Emily. He didn't need to see her face to know who she was. He didn't want to look upon that face either. He confirmed it was her from the crisscrossing of red lines on her arms and wrists. It's been a long time, hasn't it, Arthur? Not long enough, he thought. Why are you torturing me like this? he asked, though deep down he knew the answer. I'm not torturing you, Arthur. I'm trying to help you. All those people back there are dead. It was more of a statement than a question. Yes, they all died for you, my love. Or because of you. On your military orders or due to your negligence. Intentionally or because of bad planning or your characteristic arrogance. But only one of us here died because we loved you, Arthur. We've all been assembled here for this moment. What moment? He demanded. You're all here to finish me off, is, is that it? She giggled. You always were a little paranoid, dear. No, I'm here to offer you a chance of redemption. Haven't you realized that yet? You came so close to it last time they brought you in here. We'll get it right eventually, and then we can all move on. Last time? Get what right eventually? What on earth was she talking about? I don't understand. Where are we, exactly? She took off the veil, and her cracked lips parted to reveal a crooked-toothed smile. Arthur, my dear, you should be more concerned about where we're going. He had to put a stop to all this. Turn the ship around! He was going to find the captain, give him a piece of his mind. Then suddenly he was where he wanted to be, on the bridge, and it was crewed by three white-uniformed sailors. Stop this ship! He yelled, to no effect. The crew continued working at their post, seemingly oblivious to his presence. He made a grab for the closest man, tried to reason with him, but when he looked into the sailor's eyes, he saw only empty sockets in a creamy skull. The general recoiled, repulsed. He scrambled over to the captain, and saw he too was but a skeleton in uniform, and the monster pushed him over onto the deck, slamming him down to the floor. The general looked up in fear at the thing at the wheel. We've got to stop! The general wheezed between breaths. We've got to! The captain shook his gnarly skull and raised a bony finger towards the horizon. Slowly and painfully, the general stood up on shaking legs and followed the finger's direction. Out of the window and past the bow, the sea ahead of them was coming to a stop. Just nothing beyond it, like they were just about to sail off the edge of the world. You don't understand! The general wailed. I did bad things 
terrible things, I accept that. I led dozens to an early grave. I'm sorry, but I'm not that man anymore. I'm not. Emily was behind him now, her hand touching his shoulder. Well done, Arthur. We got there in the end, didn't we? Shame you're just a few seconds too late. The general screamed as the ship lurched and dropped headfirst into hell. General Arthur Lake awoke to the sight of angels blowing trumpets above him. Or were they devils waving pitchforks? He squinted to try and see the ornate decoration on the ceiling a little better. Where were his glasses? And where was he for that matter? The answer would surely come to him eventually. The tape stops there, though the story clearly continues for the general, indefinitely. But this is where the professor left off for the evening, so we also have to leave you now, hopefully not alone this Halloween night. But if you are feeling lonely, take comfort in the fact that you'll always be surrounded by your own thoughts and memories, even the ones you think you've successfully forgotten. On a night like this, they might even come back to haunt you just when you least expect. The Matlock Tapes, Trilogy of Tales, was presented by Giles Cosgrove. Musical themes were by Mr. Brown, and the series creator and producer was James Baxter. 